Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today, we reflect on the US election, its outcomes, its processes, and of course, what it means. Is it the end of Western civilization, or is it just another way station on the very long history of democracy in the USA? What is democracy anyway? Is it just voting, or is it something much, much deeper than that? Uh, and of course, we really want to work out what a potential Biden administration might actually look like. And of course, we'll be wondering, what's the fascination for Australia, and how does it respond to what might be a change of administration in Washington? I'm here, joined today by, uh, in the studio, which is fantastic, Gideon Rosner on my right, the Director of Policy at the IPA. Morning, Scott. It's great to have you. And, uh, and of course, you've been a, a great uh, guest on the last couple of weeks, talk, making some bold predictions about the election, which we'll be revisiting. I'm also very pleased Hooray. that we have uh, research fellow Morgan Begg. Thanks, Scott. An assiduous follower of uh, US politics, uh, down into the minutiae of uh, various congressional districts. We look forward to some of that. And, of course, coming in via Zoom from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Also adjunct fellow at the IPA. Uh, and uh, yes, we, we've been threatening to talk about the US election and here we are, Chris, on this post-election special coming to you on Thursdays, as we will be all the way up to Christmas. We are, and it is slightly more post-election than perhaps we thought last night. So we're recording this, and this becomes really relevant. We're recording this at 11 o'clock on Thursday. It, it does appear that there are a number of paths for Joe Biden to become the president and fewer paths for Donald Trump to become president. Uh, it's looking very much like there'll be a Biden presidency with a, um, a, a Democrat Senate, uh, Biden either popping over the line or winning reasonably Sorry, Republican comfortably. Senate. Republican Senate. Republican Senate. Well, my apologies. So mm -hmm. Republican Senate. And as you pointed out, also a um, majority Republican-leaning um uh, 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 Supreme Court as well. So why don't we throw initially long, to Gideon long. with Gideon's um, significant and bold predictions. Gideon, what has surprised you about um, uh, this result or, or this presumed result? Well, Chris, I was a strong supporter of Marco Rubio in the 2016 primaries, so I've actually been vindicated, I think, by the result last night. But uh, no, look, in all, in all seriousness, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, look, it, it, this is probably the most devastating election outcome, certainly that I've seen in my lifetime, certainly the most consequential that I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I still don't understand it. I do not understand how you have somebody who's admittedly controversial, admittedly polarising, but with the American system that t t depends so much on turnout for a somebody with a track record, with genuine achievement, with a huge following, with who ran an excellent campaign in the main, lost to the worst presidential ticket since McGovern-Shriver and the most left-wing presidential ticket since McGovern-Shriver, incidentally, uh, in 1972. Um, this, other than the polls, every other indicator to me was showing you know, a comfortable win, and I was a bit bullish in my predictions, uh, as I tend to be, but this is, this is bad. This, this, these are bad times now. Uh, this, was the I, final I, this was the final showdown. This was, we needed Trumpism in it, such as it is to be cemented. It was the final showdown between the anti-establishment, uh, patriotic, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the two Americas, you know, the, the, the establishment, the bureaucratic managerial woke industrial complex, um, the expertocracy, every, all the the villains uh, 
that are the manifestations of the modern nations, or the modern state, versus uh, Middle America and and the state one. And uh, I think that's for two reasons. Just just I know this is a long answer, but um, I think the most shocking thing, though, to answer your question is. Biden only ran on two issues. He couldn't run on the economy or anything else. He ran on Orange Man Bad and on Corona. Orange Man Bad brought out the base, sure, but it would not have won in the election. Corona did. And what that tells me is that even the the people of the United States of America, the most freedom-loving people, at least in theory, people on the face of the earth, voted were so terrified by this virus that they cashed in their freedoms for a candidate who firstly can't even tie his shoelaces, but secondly will impose lockdowns, championed lockdowns. That to me is I, the most surprising thing. So so I, I, I understand your point. I don't understand why you would be surprised though. So what we know from the literature about how elections go is that it tends to be in bad times they push out incumbents. So it doesn't matter what sort of bad times and why those bad times are. True. Um, so there's really good evidence to suggest that if it's raining on a polling day, yeah. the incumbent will lose percentage points. If there's been a natural disaster, the incumbent will lose percentage points. And in this circumstance, it doesn't seem surprising that you would have a global pandemic, regardless of what you think Donald Trump's response was, and he would suffer for it. The incumbent, any incumbent would suffer for it. Mm. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't seem surprising in any way. I think there are lessons to draw and, and, and you're right to try to, to start drawing some of them, but it doesn't strike me as a surprise in the slightest. Yeah, Morgan, yeah, Morgan, why don't we throw you in yeah. here? What, what has surprised you and, or, or do you share my or Gideon's view or wh- where would you like to go from here? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're right, Chris. Uh, I had anticipated and maybe I hoped for, uh, a, a comfortable Trump win, but my, my confidence interval was right across the board. I, 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 it was I, from zero to a hundred. Yeah, 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 pretty yeah. much. Um, what, what actually did interest me more, um, was the anticipated Biden landslide. There were, there were talks that there would be numerous, uh, Senate seats that would be flipping to the Democrats. There'd be, uh, I don't know if anyone was talking about, uh, how many seats that the Republicans would pick up in the house of representatives, uh, um, Republicans picked up another uh, governorship uh, in Montana, I believe. Um, so I think, as, yeah, aside from the top level result, which is still, I still think uh, there's a path for Trump to win. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's called. I don't think it's a, a, a safe uh, to assume Biden will win at this stage. Um, so I think I think there's still uh, I still there's still a bit of counting to go. Um, I guess and, and, I had and, and some court challenges, which, yeah, which may yeah. have an influence. That's uh, right. I think I think we're definitely going down that route, and um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But I, I was um, the the big one was of course there was some talk that the polling uh, companies, the pollsters, that they would have recalibrated their methodology uh following that was your that was your bold prediction um, chris <laughs> yeah yeah so we, we yeah. should talk about the polls yeah. in a second yes yeah. uh, and um the polls are relevant yeah and what uh, essentially uh, the 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 errors of the polls have been um highlighted again they, they were 
showing big, big uh, victories for Biden in several of the states. And the actual anticipated result has been much, either much closer or uh, completely opposite to what they uh, had anticipated. So, uh, yeah, we, we can get into that further, but I thought that was yeah. really interesting no, as well. We, we should so, come back to the polls. Um, I, I just want to say, uh, in, Gideon, you were talking about the, um, the divisions in America. Mm. Um, and I just want to dwell on that for a sec because uh, it's a what, worldwide phenomenon. But well, yeah, this, within well, America, well, this for is the thing. Say. This is one of, one of the things that I truly hate about the um, uh, the Democratic talking points uh, and the CNN talking points is this idea that um, uh, Trump has created these divisions, um, hmm. and uh, that until Trump came on the scene, there were no America yeah. was this beautiful. You know, it was all sunlit uplands, yeah, and everyone the, loved the, each the, other. The and middle America just shut up and took it. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I come back to Hazari. yeah, I come back to something like um, uh, Charles Murray's coming apart, which you know we've, we've talked talked about before. It was on um, uh, it's been in the IPA review that was published in 2012. Hmm. You know, the, the, the you know the the uh, highly educated elites. Um, uh, with their um, intermarriage, you know, on yeah. co- you know graduates of the great schools, coastal, you know, the five percent was was Murray's yeah. point that these are the people that are actually running America. Yeah. Um, and you know, me and and he looked at the opposite five percent. He literally analysed the opposite five percent demographics, and um, and he pulled out the ethnic class factors, all these sorts of things. So this idea that Trump somehow created this division uh, right. was a nonsense, and this idea that that Biden's going to unite America. Well, what he what he's done is, is he, he's he's got just enough of one side to win. Just and just as Trump nearly had enough to win, so mm. we should never draw conclusions about what America is no. simply because the needle just happened to fall just one mm. side of the line. And and as and as uh, as Morgan said. Um, uh, we certainly don't have any kind of Biden landslide. Yep. So it would have been a lie to say, well, I got over 300 electoral college votes, therefore I have this clear mandate to introduce the full panoply of the, of the Democrat fantasy, which is their, their platform. Um, and, and, and I'm glad it didn't got that, but it would have been a nonsense anyway. Yeah, because you know we're only but, talking but, about half a million votes either way. So, but it's also so so the the election result is better. So I had assumed, based on the polls, again we'll talk about the polls in a sec. But based on the polls, I had assumed that it would be a Biden landslide because that's what the polls were saying. Um, in fact, what we've got is a um, a marginal Biden victory that looks like the marginal. So the midwestern states that went to Trump the last time went looks like they're going to Biden this time. Um, and in fact, the most interesting thing and the most important thing then is that the Republicans have kept the Senate. So all the wild lefty policies, the Green mm. New Deal, um, uh, court packing, all that sort of stuff is going to be held up if Biden wanted to do them, held up in the Senate. And we're mm. going to get the same logjam that we got under the Obama years. Now, that is actually not a bad outcome. Because then we might get the Republicans caring about spending and deficits again, which would be desirable. We might get them um, worried about shrinking the size of government rather than letting Biden grow the size of government. So I can understand it may not be the best of all possible worlds, but it's not a bad outcome if you assume that there was going to be a democratic sweep. Um, no, it's still a pretty bad. <laughs> I think it's, I, it's, I, I can't see anyone in Congress the, actually speaking it, up for, for debts and deficits. Now. It's a bad outcome because it's not about 
the next four years and, and American domestic and foreign policy and things like that. As I said, it is the defeat of Trumpism. It is the defeat of uh, all the, you know, we needed something to, we being those on the centre-right. No, but, but you've swung from optimism to pessimism. I, I like the, uh, Daniel, our colleague Daniel Wilde at CPAC yesterday. What did he say? I didn't well, catch well, it. Uh, it. Basically, that, uh, you know, uh, what we've seen is just as people talked about Reaganism, you know, mm. whatever happens with Trump in, in oh, the 2020 election. they'll be the constituency for it. Yeah, I mean... Uh, and, and I think it'll win in the end. No, look, don't get me wrong. You know, Obama... Uh, sorry, B. Hussein Obama had a... a um, saying when he said... When Trump mm. lost, he said the, the, the progress zigzags, but the arc of history bends towards justice. I do believe the arc of history bends towards freedom. Um, and uh, But I, I think it'll take probably longer than my lifetime to restore yeah, yeah, that, what we've lost. Yeah, yeah, the, depo um, the deplorables are not going to be put we back have, into this a could box. Have, what I'm getting at is this could have been the knockout blow. This could have said to them, all the things you're saying about Russian collusion and delegitimising the movement, the, the what happened in 2016, the fact that so many Americans against all the odds said, we will not take this anymore, we will not be ruled over by this, again, the bureaucratic, managerial, woke, um, uh, self-important self uh, elite, uh, that has now been reversed. And uh, maybe it'll come bouncing back when the Harris administration proves to be a complete and utter disaster. But that's what we had. We almost had that... that Final win, this and now I'll be struggling against the monstrosity that is the modern day state, uh, certainly for the rest of my lifetime. Gideon, what hope? What hope for uh, <laughs> a post Trump Trumpism? <laughs> what what opportunities are there? Do you do you see? Oh well, uh, Trumpism. Uh, I guess Trumpism isn't an idea. Is an idea, and Trump is a vehicle for that idea currently. But that uh, that idea will. Uh, persevere uh i think um with in the my uh, my thoughts are conflicted on the question i i'm trying to uh, picture exactly how uh that idea can win again um in the face of so much and i'll call it corruption i'm like the media corruption the uh the the establishment the established interests uh, you know I think in 2020, we had the foot soldiers of the Democratic Party on the streets in the cities uh, putting a gun to the heads of the Americans saying, give us control of the country or we burn down the cities. And it worked. And it worked. And it worked. How, I don't, I, and I don't know how, how do you overcome that? That's a, that's a really tough question. Uh, and just while, while you're still gathering your thoughts, <laughs> I, love the, I love the narrative that in, in cities like New York, they were boarding up um, their stores against the right that was going to follow a Trump victory, but, and somehow this was Trump's, Trump's fault. fault. <laughs> I mean, it's that takes some doing. Because he, because so he created dishonest. divisions. Yeah, yeah, he created it's, those it's divisions. So he, he, upset, think, uh, he upset the woke uh, people. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary. And just think <laughs> on the election night coverage how none of the news stations were prepared to admit when uh, Trump had won a state like no. they, they took them hours to concede that florida had gone to trump they, like they were just they, they were uh, paving the way for uh some other option to come for i don't i don't even fox news. And, and then yeah. chris you were talking about the fox reaction. news is called arizona probably <laughs> prematurely yeah the reaction to trump's speech 
uh, Chris was also illustrative yes. of what was going on. That's right. So, so um, for those who may not have uh, seen, of course, Donald Trump. In fact, first Joe Biden stood up and said that um, we believe we are winning um, uh, at something like one thirty in the morning U.S. time, and then half an hour later, I'm, I'm making these things up, maybe <laughs> at two two a.m. in the morning, Donald Trump stood up um, and, uh, and and foreshadowed many of the claims of fraud um, and said, we have one. Now, what struck me is not, I actually think there were some pretty serious mistakes made in that speech, but what really struck me and what I did want to talk about is the pre-rebuttal that was going on. So I was watching CNN. Yes. I was swipping, switching between lots of channels, but at the time I was watching CNN. And CNN was trying to rebut his claims of fraud before he had made them in the speech. Like, and Donald Trump is widely expected to say that this election has been stolen, which it absolutely has not. Like, yeah. like let's, let's, let's wait it out, shall we? Let's um, at least see what he says. Now, I, I think that what Trump said is, was very Trumpy and was probably a pretty significant mistake, especially if he does want to challenge these things in court. Um, uh, but having said that, um, there's there's something that we've talked about for a long time, right, Scott? We've talked about the way the media thinks of itself these days as having a unique responsibility to tell us the truth as it sees rather than just report the, the story. And I've been so bothered by this idea that people have been throwing around in, in media land and on Twitter that they shouldn't even air like what the president says, because yeah. that would be irresponsible not to air uh, the claims from the president of the United States. Mate, he's the president. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> what, and what they're actually reporting, what they're reporting on is the story that uh, Trump has used his remaining time as commander-in-chief to call out the army to suspend democracy and the constitution in America and appoint himself president for life. That's been the, the yeah. narrative for the last six months. But, and they were Trump, essentially Trump, yeah, framing but, his look, speech around that narrative and Trump, saying, Trump, saying this Trump proves our in. point. My God, he's going to use the courts to dispute ballots, which is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, which is what's provided for in legislation. Which, is, which, which is fine and, and asking for a recount and all that sort of stuff. But Trump walks into this, right? He, 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 know, he I don't know that he always knows what he says, but he just says whatever's on his mind. And he says, like, there was definitely fraud. Well, you know, this is for the courts to find out. And, you know, if you want to challenge things in the courts, have that happen. So it, my, my, my only point is that the media on one side and Trump on the other side, they work each other into a lather just as much as um, uh, one is to blame. Look, I have to say, though, look, this this whole thing about Trump making a, a speech and saying we think we've won and everything else, and I've been paid out on, on Twitter for this because um, Biden started it. Biden went to, you know, it was a very provocative thing for Biden to do. He he addressed people, himself. It's you know, fun fact by the way. No dem no losing Democratic presidential candidate has conceded on the night since 1988, which would tell you something. But um, more to the point, he. he you know, if you're going to say, okay, it's still, you know, we're not going to know tonight, do what, you know, send out Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, to say, you know, we're not conceding yet, we fought long and hard, et cetera, et cetera, you know, like John Edwards did in 2000, um, or send out, uh, what's his name, like Hillary Clinton did, to come out and say, we think we're winning, that's as bad as saying we won this election, that's as bad as... Um, uh, uh, declaring victory prematurely. They obviously did it because they thought that's what Trump would do, um, but that was very opp opportunistic and very cynical as well. Um, 
Yeah. I, 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 I don't think we should be hanging on Trump over this. He just fights harder than, yeah, than, than I, the I, useless idiots from the Republican Party have fought for the last 20 years. I, but I, he has I, to because look what he's up against. Oh, look, it's, it's such a, a pretty... Um, a prissy sort of narrative of um, this pure form of democracy that America is supposed to have had. Mm. I mean, th- th- these are always incredibly tightly fought things. And, of course, you know, voting is only part of the system. You know, the courts are part of the system. The Electoral yep. College is part of the system. And at, at every turn, there's there's this sort of uh, delegitimization of, of it, frankly, of anything that might favour Trump. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's terrible. Strat- it's, it's terrible strategy for one particular reason. What he's doing, in, and he's done this in a number of other court cases, he's made prejudicial comments that the courts have then been able to turn around and say, well, Donald Trump said this, so therefore you can't make that claim in court because you're, you're the person who's bringing the action has um, stated otherwise to than your legal claim. So if if he wants to challenge these in courts, as is is right, and in many cases should be, and I am thinking about the the Pennsylvania situation, which there is actually like really legitimate things to be discussed and, and disputed in court, then it's very easy for justices to either delay the hearing or just to, to it gives them an excuse to do so or just point out any prejudicial things he said. It's just bad strategy. So I get, Gideon, that yes, he fights, but sometimes his fighting is counterproductive to his interest. Oh, look, it's crash or crash through, but uh, I think he's over the, you know, his very, very short political career has racked up more wins than losses. I mean, the, yeah, you know, uh, his track record show. I mean, I, look, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. Uh, President Cruz couldn't have gotten Brett Kavanaugh up. President, Cru- President Cruz couldn't have pulled out of Paris even if he wanted to. You know, his, his combativeness, it's, uh, not everybody likes it, uh, but it gets results. And, uh, but, you know, apparently, uh, you know, bringing millions of Americans back into work, reviving whole communities, uh, that's not as important as a bit of foul language on Twitter, you know. I mean, sure. So I, sh- I should take my, I, I, I should take my blame. Oh, not my blame. My, I should um, uh, embarrass myself as well. So in the last episode, people will remember that um, I gave, we were going around the table um, asking everybody how much percentage chance do you think Donald Trump had versus uh, Joe Biden? Um, I think uh, Andrew Bushnell said something like 30%. <laughs> Scott, forgive me if I can't remember exactly about, how many percentage About 40%, yeah. I said 11% chance, and I was basing that entirely, entirely on um, uh, the 538, so Nate Silver's famous poll aggregator, where he um, uh, weights polls, well, sorry, he aggregates the polls and then weights them by what he views as quality. The polls were way, way, way off. And as um, I think uh, Gideon and Morgan, you've pointed out, in some cases in Florida, for instance, where it looked like Biden was up three. In fact, turns out that Biden was down three. Mm. Wisconsin, which has crept over the line for Biden. Of course, we'd had polls from Wisconsin saying that Biden was up seven, up 10. There yeah. was a plus 17 yeah. poll um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the question is, so if we can't trust polls, if we can't um, use polls as any guide, to what the electorate is thinking, how can we assess what the electorate is thinking at any given moment? And Gideon, we've had this conversation a couple of times, but I I don't know that we can replace it with, 
yard signs or the you number know, of people who turn up at Trump rallies. Or biscuit so, sales at a uh, Pennsylvania are we, are we, cafe. Are we lost with no information or? Um, yeah, uh, yeah I, I guess so. Um, look, I, I call me old-fashioned. This is the, this is the nihilistic answer. This well, is just like, eh, no yeah, one knows. Look, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, uh, I saw that line from Brett Sutton. Um, but, no, but, but are they broken? I mean, you know, uh, but look, well, getting, getting, even in your time... Uh, in more political roles, uh, government roles. I mean, just with changes in technology, mm. um, you know, the the whole idea of telephone polling or going around with clipboards. I mean, what 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 world are we in now? Is it worth paying any attention to them at Not, all? No, I wouldn't say in Australia certainly because it's difficult to get um, you know purchase mobile data and things like that, and no, very few people have landlines anymore. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's difficult. Look, call me old fashioned. I think the best way to um, to find out what the electorate is thinking is for politicians to talk to their constituents. Uh, I think, and this is this is actually why what will happen on social media um, with their ongoing censorship will be so, de- so that'll be the most divisive thing at all because people, you know, the, the Trump Trump won in 2016 because there was a huge segment of the American population that didn't feel listened to. If they are bl- blocked or prevented from at least ventilating their opinions on, you know, in what is the, the the 21st century's public square, then they're going to go somewhere else, and uh, they you know hopefully they will come out of their hidey hole in four years' time and belt the Democrats back to the Stone Age. The question is, who'll be on the ticket? Will it be somebody good, or will be or will we go back? And this is the question about segueing into I guess what we should talk about next, which is the future of the Republican Party and the right. Will we will Trumpism survive, or will we just go back to you know boring nobody ineffectual nobodies like uh, Jeb Bush? Mm. So I want to I want to ask Gideon. And, and Morgan, you might have a view on this. What do we mean by Trumpism in that sense? So, so obviously, um, let's let's assume that Trump doesn't run in twenty twenty four, which is hardly a um, uh, hardly a guarantee. Or, um, but what what do we mean by Trumpism? Is Trumpism an effect, or is it a set of policy choices? Because I'm very uncomfortable, as you as you know, with many of the policy choices. So the anti trade stuff. You know, as am I. I might add. Yeah. yeah I, so so but, so what what is it that we mean by Trumpism and what is it that we want to recover from the Trump presidency and what might we want to discuss? I think it's a scepticism about state control and state power. Um, and you're, you're right. It's a good question, though, Chris, in a sense, because one thing, one, one point I've made is that, you know, the left are always talking about coalition building and saying we need to build a coalition. And generally they're talking about, you know, uh, ethnic minorities and, uh, you know, unionists or something like that. Trump is the best coalition builder we've ever seen in, in political history. If you're watching the convention, he brought together so many disparate groups, whether it be, uh, you know, Maine lobster fishermen, uh, religious uh, leaders, uh, you know, uh, frankly, libertarians like myself, who, again, don't... Uh, I, I take issue with plenty of his decisions, but I love him because of the success he's had in red tape, in tax, in political correctness, in free speech, um, uh, you know, give or take. I know that the ideas about um, big tech regulation, you know, might uh, cause a bit of disagreement there. But yeah, it's 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 a but it is also a, a, a mentality. It is this idea. No, I'm not going to apologise for a stupid joke I made at a rally. I'm not going to say, oh well, I'm sorry for. It. No, I'm not going to. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to talk about things through your frame. I, it, it's this idea that, and this is why I'm so disappointed. Because I wanted the precedent that 
a candidate could say what he was thinking, could be upfront, be direct, um, compl- not just uh, oppose political correctness, but but um, uh, but crap on it Can- and win anyway. And that just doesn't look like it's uh, the precedent has been cemented. So I'll just add another dimension to what Gideon's saying. And for me, tr- uh, a, a part of Trumpism is uh, about prioritising the place of the working class within the the wider market economy, mm. uh, and this uh, and this is recognising that you know there's a place for factories and factory workers in a in a 21st century Western economy that are you know these these kinds of jobs don't need to be outsourced if if we can avoid it so we can as you were saying, you know, we can cut taxes, we can Correct. cut red tape, we can make it possible so that businesses can stay in America or yeah. in the West. Rather than shunting yeah. everybody into you know, yeah. green jobs. Yeah, exactly. Morgan, or, or Morgan, government Morgan, jobs. Morgan, isn't, yeah. isn't that, that a, a vision of the future dispute within the Republican Party? Because I think around sure. this table we would all agree that low taxes and deregulation are desirable and the outcome of that would... Um, be more productive activity in the United States. But in fact, the other part of that that policy suite is the tariffs and is the idea that you can use trade policy to bring those factories back or at least um, tax goods from outside the country. Is that the dispute? And where do we think that the Republican Party will end up? Well, Well, one thing I'll say is I think the Republican Party does... Look, trade is, a, is is an issue that everybody on the right we, we need to have a long think about because you know I'm a, I'm a free trader and I don't like a lot of the, the the Trump protectionist streak and the vibe, but I don't think the fear and this is you know I didn't support Trump until he was elected, um, but I don't think the fear of you know tariff barriers coming up and the, and the drawbridge coming up uh, was born out in reality. I think that you know there was a renegotiation of NAFTA and its replacement with a, a another deal. Um, and there was, sure, a trade war with China, but uh, I, 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 I won't begrudge. I, I don't support, you know, trade wars and, and, and those sort of mechanisms to, you know, pr- bring factories back or anything like that. But to uh, ensure that the rules-based order when it comes to global trade is working as it should, and to make sure that dishonest, nefarious actors like China can't take advantage of trade rules, I absolutely. I think in hindsight, uh, looking back, I was I was a, I had a road to Damascus on that. You know, I think it's a bit of a fiction that free trade agreements are you know completely open and free trade. I think there are lousy deals. We do need to make sure that uh, the free trade agreements that are negotiated are, are ones that are going to be as free as possible in the first instance. But failing that, um, rules that will benefit Australian citizens, our people. Can- but you, you can't you, you can't jump from um, Trumpism as an affect, where a really big part of that affect was we've got to stop outsourcing our jobs. We're going to finally use um, uh, we're going to turn free trade into fair trade, while simultaneously claiming that Trump has a really technical um, uh, issue with trade agreements as written. So so in that it, and I don't disagree with the things that you've said. I I'm just interested to see that it's these sorts of conversations that will determine what direction yeah. the Republican Party goes. Can, can I... I think it's also really really important too um uh without jumping too much across topics. It's also really really important to point out that the Trumpism that we saw Donald it was compl- completely disinterested. Um there was a lack of interest in caring about uh, spending 
and mm. um, yeah. uh, debt and deficits to and be all that fair, sort of thing. To be fair, um, I agree with you, and I think that you know uh, certainly his championing of um, corona stimulus payments and everything else you know, is not something that I'll go along with. But to be fair, he did take a pretty ambitious uh, tax cut budget to Congress and you know the brains trust and the Republican Party uh, blocked that. So I think that yeah. it's not quite... It's a bit more nuanced than that. But yeah, I agree. It wasn't... Can, um, can, can yeah. I... Come but that, that's a Republican thing, though. Yeah, yeah. Dick Cheney said deficits don't matter. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick it up, but we'll go to Morgan first, and then I've got a I've got a point about trade that I want to come back to. Sure. Oh well, this might fit in then. Um, so I was just thinking, what is the 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 more permanent change that Trump has brought or Trumpism has brought to the Republican Party? And I think that the traditional economic model pre 2016, which was uh, high domestic taxes and regulations and uh, no uh, uh, complete exposure to international competition mm. was a combination which, and I think they're, rec- I think they're recognising this, this was a combination which uh, routed middle America, rural America, parts of America which have just been completely gutted. And I think, um, I think the belief in that traditional economic model uh, which was ma- which was completely mainstream in the Republican Party. Uh, I think that has been. I think that has changed, and I think there's a recognition that even if even if Trumpism itself uh, isn't the solution, that there needs to be a solution to that combination. So. I, got, I got I got two things on that. The first is, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't overstate the extent to which tariffs have been part of the Trumpism. So part of the actual revival of actual employment, actual manufacturing. Um, has been uh, competitive, competitiveness. Mm. And we should never forget that America is still the gold standard for actually knowing how to do stuff. Uh, the, 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 the engine of innovation, their ability to run you know, massive factories with massive workforces, uh, deliver global products... Um, there's a reason why they lead the world in a whole range of things. Like For I've, now. I've seen est- estimates of productivity which say that, you know, Americans on average are about 40% more productive than, than Australians. So we should never forget. So things like tax cuts, uh, investment allowances, what they opened up uh, in terms of manufacturing, I think that, w- that will be a lingering legacy. But, look, the, the other thing about trade, because, you know, let's again, we can't make the narrative all about Trump. Um what Trump did was call out China uh, and the WTO, and we now live in a world where every other nation in the world that's not affiliated with China, and there's not too many of those, by the way, is, is now mm. saying the same thing. So, so Europe went from, oh, my God, Trump, you vandal, you're destroying the WTO and these lovely rules that we've established to, eh, actually, the guy has a point. Yeah. Mm. You know, the last, the, la- the last time the Chinese foreign minister went to um, uh, uh, Europe a few months ago... Uh, expecting to, um, you know, be fated and to be welcomed and everyone to agree what a, you know, orange man bad. What he actually got was a very stern talking to from, uh, you know, pre- previously supine, um, you know, Brussels and um, and European um, uh, diplomats. So the world has completely changed. And I think that in many ways is more important than than tariffs per se. It's about China's role in the global order but it's also why I think this conversation and a lot of the, the media conversations are a little bit delusional because we talk about, you know, how does a change in administration, what will Biden do? Americans will be reacting, I think, 
Um, the thing that worries me about the weakness of Biden, like, you know, literally senility and the weakness of the administration uh, and potentially gridlock is they will actually be reacting to events. I think this yeah. actually gives the, the... Because Trump, the thing about his, his, his uh, conscious uh, lunacy is you never know which way he's going to jump on something. And in, a, in the Westphalian multi-power world that we live in, that was actually an advantage you put you put Biden in the White House. I think the Chinese are going to run rings around him. You know? I, I think he'll have he'll have a, probably have a stroke or something before his inauguration. So I don't think Biden will end up in the White House. <laughs> oh, I'm amazed he made it to polling day. No, no, I, no. I've, I've lost money on bets of like other of other nominees because uh, I, I, I didn't think he'd make it. Well, it's like the the president who uh, got uh, got got a cold on his inauguration day and then promptly died. Is that right? Yeah. Was so, it was it Harrison? Yeah. Oh, yeah so uh, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't so, the cold. It was the COVID. One one for the anorex. So, on, on the on the off chance Biden makes it to his inauguration, <laughs> um, what do you think that this means? Uh, I might throw to you first, Morgan. What do you think that this means for Australia? We've had some um, we've had a tense and friendly relationship with the Trump administration, variously, which we might um, sheet away to different prime ministers, but. Um, uh, certainly um, in recent years, we've been quite close to the Trump administration. Mm. What do you think that this means for Australia's position in the world, our um, economic relationship? Where do you think we go from here? Um, well, my first instinct is that the the political class, uh, by and large, in Canberra will be ecstatic if it's a Biden <laughs> presidency. I think yeah. uh, this is uh, this is their, their dreams come true. I think um, we'll... The, the Australian government in its diplomatic relations with the US will be much more uh, giving, much, like much more willing to play ball with what the Americans would want. Um, that's just my instinct. I'm not a, I'm not a diplomatic expert. Um, it, it may play out completely differently, but um, that's just... I, I think um, that's just my sense of it, yeah. Gideon. Well, our, our most important ally is going to be weakened. Uh, as Scott said, it's going to be a change the power dynamics between the world's existing superpower and the world's uh, rival superpower. And Australia uh, will be collateral damage in a lot of that. I think it, I think we should all start learning Mandarin and um, yeah. liquidating our assets, putting them into Bitcoin and, you know, waiting for... Uh, uh, the Australian dollar to I will just not be worth the paper it's printed on. That's a the good Bitcoin, point, Gideon. The price of Bitcoin is doing really, really well yeah. uh, during this. So of course, yeah. I hadn't been following the US election very closely yesterday. I was mainly just tracking the Bitcoin price and it was doing... Is it worth buying more, Chris? Uh, look, it might be a bit high, but I'm okay. not your financial advisor. Yeah, so. yeah. Listen, Everybody's listeners should be advised to seek their own advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Morgan. I'll just I'd add to what Gideon said. He said it was very good um, that... The Trump administration has, I believe, given cover to the Australian government to be more honest Correct. about uh, Chinese influence yep. um, in Australia. Now, with the if there's a change in administration, how does that uh, affect our behaviour in respect to Chinese it's a, it's influence? An, it's an I'm interesting worried. one, right? I'm because, very worried. Because you've gotten... So, so to the extent that Trump started the conversation about China and started a, a, a pushback and that it did affect the Australian government and the way we thought about it. Well, that's already begun now, right? Yeah. So we're, we're in this situation that we've got these unofficial 
um, uh, trade barriers between China and Australia at the moment. They're um, preventing us exporting some really key goods like lobsters and, and various things that are really critical for us. So that trade war, that that contest has already begun. Now, the, the, the test will be, how does the Biden administration, does it just pursue the existing Trump strategy? Does it try to roll every thing back in something that may not be able to be rolled back? Um, uh, do we continue with it? Does China not care about the change in administration? That's a really interesting, yeah. pivotal moment um, that this battle may have already... You, you can't stop a battle once it's started. Yeah, and, and, and this well, is the thing, and, and to what I was saying before, you know, the, the, this idea that uh, Trump was on his own on China, like, let, let, let there be no doubt that this is bipartisan in America. Um, you know, at the, at the strategic geopolitical level, the Democrats are just as focused on uh, China's uh, behaviour, its, its rise, its, its competitive threat. But what I'm very unconvinced about is their capacity to actually translate that into into any kind of action. Mm. So, so they, um, uh, well, I wouldn't expect much change in the outlook from America. But uh, to Morgan's point, um, when when the Prime Minister of Australia is, or the Prime Minister of Japan, um, or or, or uh, someone out of the Philippines or Singapore is thinking of saying something critical about China, that do they know that America has their back? Yeah. Mm. You know, we've exactly. just we've just had Pompeo do this, you know, whistle stop all around the uh, the Indo-Pacific region to shore up, you know, the um, the the, uh, the coalition. Uh, essentially against China. Uh, not everyone played ball. Australia's rhetoric is, is nowhere near as um, anti-China as intense as you know Pompeo would have liked. But but that's what it was about. So Biden, I don't think he's going to repudiate that. Um, but I just don't see them prosecuting yeah. any kind of a strategy. And what uh, do they care? I mean, this. Oh, well, they the, care. The, their, their constituency cares. Yeah. Oh, but, well, uh, but but I'll put it this way, Scott. Though, what happens when um, you know, next time? An NBA player wants to say something about Yuga Muslims and gets howled down uh, and, and censored by the NBA because they're worried about losing lucrative China deals. Is there going to be somebody like Trump sticking up for the the the, the truth on China? I don't think so. They'll they'll be swayed by the swampocracy and say, oh, oh fair enough, fair enough, no, no, no. You, you know, you got to look after. Uh, yeah, because you're always avoiding divisions, aren't you? Yeah, got to bring the country together. It's, a, and it's about uniting everyone and making the world a peaceful place by. By not rocking the boat. Yes. Correct. Under yeah. our new Chinese overlords. <laughs> well, so, at, least, so, at least the food will be good. <laughs> and they're in the same time zone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what happens to the, the coronavirus anyway. pandemic? Get in. Oh yeah, well, that's yeah. the that's the other thing. I mean, this is this is the this is. I mean, uh, this was. It's been such a an awful year in terms of public policy, but this would have would have vindicated it this would have been somebody who literally said don't let the virus control your life don't sh we don't want to lose jobs over this and he's been defeated as i said this was biden turned into a referendum on the coronavirus and this fear this sub-rational paranoia that has swept the world even in the united states was a factor and, and what we have to ask ourselves what the next panic is um and i'm sorry to say as soon as this you know after Five more years of stage one, you know, but in COVID normal in two or three years, we'll, we'll be hearing about it, the climate scare again. And uh, the Harris administration will be that by that point be pumping trillions of dollars into the Green New Deal. Um, 
but yeah, what's going to happen to the to the coronavirus? Yeah, it's it's a it's a victory for lockdowns. It's a victory for government coercion. It's a victory for the idea that. Uh, the government's role is to keep us safe by micromanaging the minutiae of human behaviour, and that's perfectly fine, and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, that was on the ballot. And uh, again, in, in the most freedom-loving nation on the planet... Yeah, so health fascism wins. Yeah. Uh, Chris, we're probably almost at that part where we're making closing remarks. Um, uh, something we didn't get to in the show is uh, perhaps the vindication of Trumpism that will come out of the vote is uh, the... Uh, this idea that um, this has been four years of a white supremacist government. Yeah. And yeah. So that, that, uh, that, that's right. That, 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 that that's whole trope that only yeah. white, uneducated, working class people in West Virginia vote for Trump. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I even had a, uh, you know, a, a, a good, intelligent uh, lefty mate say to me, he said, oh, well, it'd be good for the Republicans when Trump's out of the road because then they can actually start once again building their links to the Hispanic community. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're going to win Florida. They're, they're doing great. They didn't put on, didn't put on parades is, in the middle of Miami for Mitt Romney. <laughs> exactly. Which is, which, is incredibly, which is incredibly interesting and incredibly significant. So the, the um, results, as far as we can tell, suggest that Trump has actually made inroads in a number of minority groups, in, uh, especially... Uh, Latinos, um, but also in some uh, groups of black Americans yeah. and so forth. Um, and what that does tell you, or I, I think we could, we, we can assume that the identity politics first model of the, demo, of the um, that many on the left have been pushing just does not sell to the very communities that it's supposed to be about, or at least it doesn't sell in the way that they think they do. You cannot simultaneously pretend to be representing minority communities while they're voting against that representation. Um, and now that has huge implications for Australia. That has huge implications for the way we think about, um, uh, uh, about identity politics and politics in general. But it, it, this idea that we're in this post-materialist environment, what Morgan, Morgan, your point, that we do have to think or the Republicans need to keep front in mind the idea of a working class, the idea of industry, all that sort of thing. We do need to care about, and the Democrats and the left need to care about material outcomes. And people ultimately vote on the basis of um, the economy. They do vote on the basis of prosperity. Hmm. They don't vote on the basis of academic theory about intersectionality, <laughs> as fascinating as I'm sure that is. I don't know. I think when people are don't have anything else to lose, they might get taken in by, um, you know, this idea that they're poor and oppressed and miserable because they're black and there's systemic racism. I think that might actually take hold. I think we're stuck with identity politics now. I really do. No, it's, it's, it's entrenched. No, it's... A, it's a, no, it, it's a, uh, it's a victory for the uh, old Marxism against the new Marxism. I mean, people are voting with their material interests. <laughs> and, and there's an overlap as well, isn't there, uh, Morgan, with values as well. That, um, you know, that these, these are, we've seen it in some African-American communities, uh, which, are, which are focused on, you know, conservative values, personal responsibility, um, you know, family values. Certainly in the, in the Latino communities, it's, um, it's, it's a combination of voting for your true class interest 
Um, you know, why, why are you going to listen to someone who, you know, is, who is a professor at Yale yelling at you about intersectional politics or some, you know, woke fruitcake from a privileged um, uh, college when you can actually be saying, well, you know, I've got to vote according to my life mm, as yeah. it is and, and the values of the people around me. So, you know, that's, that's the lasting legacy. And that's why the GOP... Well, 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 he actually did all right, and we'll, and, <laughs> and won some key key state contests as well. Uh, any other closing remarks, Morgan? Um, I haven't lost hope. It could happen. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, yes. It, it could happen. It could happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I have been watching watching um, uh, the results while we've been talking, and uh, and neither way so far. But okay. um, yeah, and there there is a look. Look, Morgan, in your there is definitely a path. Yeah. It's just a very narrow. Yeah, <laughs> and and this is of course a product of the uh, this podcast is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate and support our programming and research, including tomorrow, Gideon, you're back in the studio. I yes, believe. the IPA with you. We'll also be taking a look at the Trump election and I'll be elaborating on this idea that it was a referendum on corona and yep. what that means. And if, if something, if, if by a miracle it happens, you'll be able to say, you know, Morgan called it. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, is, there is a path. Um, I'll split my sports bets winnings with you, Morgan. <laughs> so please do come back to uh, the IPA with you, hosted by Gideon Rosner, tomorrow, Friday. And in the meantime, we have come to that part of the show where we just change gears a little bit and talk about what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Uh, we have uh, three uh, wonderful nominations today. I'm actually just going to pass. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit cooked on it. Oh, you're, you're cooked out, are you? Yes. You, you weren't reading a novel in the middle of the US election campaign? No, I think, I think three's plenty. Uh, Chris, would you like to lead us off? I'll, I'll kick off. So um, I watched The Queen's Gambit which is a um, Netflix TV show about a young woman who becomes a chess ground master um, in, during the Cold War. Now, the thing that I have to say about that is during COVID, we have all watched a lot of Netflix. And as I've been talking about TV shows, I've been saying, this show isn't bad. You know, this show is adequate. Here's something. This, but The Queen's Gambit is genuinely excellent it is really very good it reminds us what prestige television actually is of the sort of quality that we were getting well before the um coronavirus pandemic um the lead actor um whose name escapes me is um uh, fantastic it is a riveting story about a young woman who it becomes both excellent in her field and has drug and alcohol addictions as well um uh, it doesn't always go the direction that you will think it goes but it is just just stunning acting beautifully shot wonderful theme it, they even managed to do the chess scenes very well and even quite fresh some people have said that um it drags on a bit hmm. it probably could have lost one or two episodes at the end there but i didn't mind because we've got to keep watching something don't we um, uh, and uh, it, it, it is really genuinely very, very good. Yeah, I looked. I caught a couple of episodes. The uh, the actress is Anya Taylor Joy. Uh, she's certainly striking looking, a very good actress from what I saw. And I should mention that uh, in two thousand and sixteen, uh, she was in a movie called Morgan. Oh, of course. Oh, so, there you go. So you need, so to, you need to get onto that. Into that one, Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> what? How about you, Morgan? Um, Oh, it's shocking, Chris, that you said um, that a Netflix show would be criticised for dragging on. That's uh, I know. Uh, I, know. I, I, I really wanted to just break a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I uh, 2020 has been the uh, year of uh, seeking whatever form of escapism uh, in a diminishing range of uh, entertainment media that uh, are available to us. Everything's been closed down, so we're stuck in our houses. Uh, we're limited to streaming, reading books, and uh, playing video games. Uh, and it's in that context that I've I've been uh, become quite interested in the history. Uh, the development of the video game industry, um, and so uh, I was. Wa- I've started watching a documentary on Netflix, a documentary series. I think six, six episodes called High Score, uh, and it, it's pretty basic. It charts, you know, the, the early arcade days, the uh, the, the uh, home console era, uh, beginning in the eighties with the N- Nintendo, uh, the console wars of the nineties, uh, violence and the legal troubles. Um, in the 90s as well, and then the sort of the esports era, um, which is uh, taking place now. Um, I, I, th- I find it fascinating, uh, especially um, the, the early decades from the 70s to the 90s. The video game industry was like a, it was kind of like a wild west. Uh, mm. Just lots of innovation, throwing ideas at the wall, seeing what stuck. Yeah. Uh, the, the, I love the console wars. This was. Um, uh, Nintendo had the Super Nintendo Entertainment System and Sega had the, the Sega Genesis, or as we had, the Sega Mega Drive. Mm. Uh, and, Se- and Sega, they, they, they had a hardcore advertising campaign. They would bag out Nintendo. Uh, they had guerrilla marketing. They'd have people... Um, they'd, they'd have these guys and they'd carry around a Sega Genesis console and they'd go around to university campuses... Uh, and, and go into dorms and frat houses and, and like show off and play and then and then go to the next campus. It was awesome. Uh, and uh, and then uh, unfortunately, Sega ended up losing and they stopped making consoles. But um, they, well, they, their last one was the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast, yeah, that, yeah unfortunately, that bombed. Yeah, yeah, and then and then and then they got I guess cannibalized a bit by Microsoft with the Xbox exactly. and um and uh, and on oh, Sony of course yeah yeah, yeah exactly isn't it, but but isn't it isn't it odd that so there's this <coughs> there's this two player war yeah. and and they're obviously vying for a monopoly but now we're as far as I'm aware now most now consoles are four player where we've got three <laughs> standard um, platforms yeah so you've got Playstations you've got Xboxes and you've got Nintendos. Um, and the Nintendo Switch yep. that seem to be selling to different markets. It's, or, it, or... Uh, yeah, somewhat. Uh, so, I mean, know, so, so, so Xbox, to put my cards on the Xbox table, doesn't we... sell in Japan, for instance. Like that is that is only Sega versus Nintendo, but uh, Xbox is much more successful in it, the American market. Um, but and and the Nintendo Switch in itself is like. Uh, it's like a completely different kind of technology. Yeah, what is the switch? The I've never figured that out. Well, is it, it is it a console or a handheld? It's a, it's, a, it's both. It's meant to be. It's like a blended uh, format. Yeah, it, well, come, that, it comes apart. Well, that's also and you can take also, it on the road with you when you. And it's okay. nice. We have got teenage girls. So my my family. So it's a switch. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Nintendo after the console wars. So the thing that the outcome of the console wars for Nintendo was that they became like the family company. Yeah. Mm. Um, Sony, Microsoft, they they pursued like the the gamer market and the the mainstream gamers, but uh, Nintendo sort of op- operate solely in this family gamer market. So that's probably what a lot of people have been playing this year. <laughs> so so we yeah. we we bought a Nintendo Switch for the yeah. kids during exactly. COVID, I think which, I, you know I never I never had one as a kid, and I was not going to buy one until you know a global pandemic sent everybody to work from home. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and I think, and this is um, in the last, I'd say, 20 years as video gaming has become more mainstream, it's just going to become bigger. It's going to be bigger than movies. Um, so I think knowing the history of it, I, I think it's, uh, very interesting to me, and it's, it should be of interest to anyone who um, has uh, any kind of interest in how people are spending their time, uh, how people are <laughs> wasting their time. So maybe, that's but... high school, and it's <laughs> yeah. on Netflix. Netflix, yeah, another Netflix one. How about you? So uh, Morgan, uh, as Morgan said, it's uh, we're, we're trying to amuse ourselves with increasingly limited uh, media of entertainment, <laughs> and in that spirit, I for whatever reason, have started watching reruns of the old show Seventh Heaven, which was a show that ran from the late 90s until the, around the mid-2000s. And basically, I can't believe I'm talking about this, but <laughs> it basically, it, um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of nostalgia for me because I did watch it when I was a kid. Um, you know, as I said, it was sort of early 2000s. And it, 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 the premise is a, a, a Protestant minister... Um, and his wife, and they live in a house uh, that the church owns, and they have five kids, uh, and often this bloke's out helping some charity case with a particular problem, so uh, they explore an issue half the time, uh, and, you know, hijinks ensue, and uh, often it's used to relate a... a it's, not, it's not expressly Christian. It's, it very rarely mentions God or... or G, it never mentions Jesus or anything like that, but it, it does talk about, you know, family. It's It's got... Um, and, and, and Christian ethics and values without expressly naming them. And what a few reflections just watching the show in the year 2020 as a 33-year-old, because uh, I clearly have too much time on my hands. Um, firstly, it's a very addictive show. I understand why I watched it when I was younger. It's, it's, you know, they, they did have a really good writer on the show and it, it did have some good storylines. Um, it is... I can't believe that it was mainstream at the time. And it was. Like, the Olsen twins went on it and, mm. like... Um, uh, Jessica Sim well, Ashley Simpson was on uh, a, a star in it, and and the the values and everything else uh, expressed on it. This, I mean, the, the championing of you know, the, the um, abstinence, for example, it was very expressly pro abstinence. It was very anti alcohol, even it was very, and yet yet it was all um, accepted at the time. I don't think a show like that could be made, or certainly wouldn't be made um, mainstream. And it also made me wonder, you know, the Camden family in this show. What would they be like today? What would, who would they have voted for? Would they have been under, you know, would, would would they be Democrats? They struck me as mildly notionally democratic on the show. Um, and the, one of the lead actors has since gone on to participate in women's marches or so on. But would they be Democrats uh, today? Would they be welcome in the Democratic Party? Or would they, uh, would Reverend Camden be voting for Trump because, you know, the Black Lives Matter people were trying to burn down his church? Be, I don't know. They'd be but, so um, Trump. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. so I'm glad I've, glad I've watched it. Uh, it's a bit of fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just shows how the mores and uh, the Overton window in terms of social issues um, has, has shifted. Yeah. You wouldn't see it today. No, you wouldn't. No. That's, that's an Amazing pick! You, you never cease. But, uh, we'll just, you never cease. You never cease to surprise, Gideon. Yeah, well, I, I must say. Yeah, well, but that's the final point I make, and you're, you're right, Morgan. Though, because you know, there's a lot of disagreement without this, around this place about social issues, and and you know, to varying degrees. Some, some of us are conserv more personally conservative. Some of us are uh, much less, um, bordering on uh, libertinism. But um, I don't think. That, yeah, you, you couldn't have a d discussion about those. That, that wouldn't be mainstream content. It's just so outside the realm mm. of even the possibility of discussing things with this, this genuinely Christian 
uh, outlook. It's it's a relic from a bygone era. And I, frankly, again, much as I am not a particularly conservative person personally, I think we're actually poorer for it for having lost that. Well said. Um, that's right, because it's still half the country, and who knows? You can actually make product for it. No. Um, no, thank you, Gideon, and uh, thank you for those three very interesting picks. You've been listening to Looking Forward, uh, which is a product of the IPA. Please do go to our website, get around us. If you're listening on a, on a podcast platform, please take this opportunity to make sure you're subscribed and to give us a rating, preferably a very high one. Uh, I'd like to say a big thank you to our panellists today, Morgan Begg. Thanks, Scott. Chris Berg. Thank you. And Gideon Rosner. Don't forget, Gideon will be back in the studio tomorrow for the IPA with you. Big thank you to Josh in the studio. I've been Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and we'll be back with more next week.